Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the DCVC podcast. I am your host Akash Pat, and each week I bring you angel investors and venture capitalists investing in the changing tech landscape in India. And this week is no different. I'm really excited about my next guest. He's somebody who also featured earlier this year in the DCVC summit on the healthcare panel, and I'm extremely thrilled to be delving deeper into some of the subjects that was explored back then on today's episode. I have with me today Anvesh Ramanini of Mass Mutual Ventures. Anvesh has spent a considerable amount of time in private equity and investment banking and now brings all of that experience into venture capital. He looks at the Southeast Asian ecosystem and more specifically across cybersecurity, data, cloud infrastructure and healthcare. On today's episode, we're going to explore all of those topics and understand why Southeast Asia happens to be one of the most promising markets with respect to venture capital. Let's head in and talk to Anvesh. Hey Anvesh, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hi Akash, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm doing very well, thank you. Um yeah, it's a Friday morning in Singapore, so looking forward to the weekend and looking forward to this conversation. Fantastic. Likewise, it's been 6 months since we last spoke and a lot has changed in that period, right? We've uh, recovered from COVID in some capacity if you're th- thinking about it from an India perspective before being hit by the second wave. So, what I'm really curious about is understanding learning how this really operates on your end when you're looking and look at it from an investment perspective. How does this change things for you? Like how does the second wave of COVID really change conversations internally at your organization yeah i mean fundamentally it hasn't really impacted our thesis on india and investing in india i think what it has done unfortunately is delay the process a little bit for us so uh we've spoken to a lot of companies where the founders and the founders families and the employees have all been sort of all whole contracted covid and unfortunately I mean, you know, they need to quarantine themselves and so on. So uh, it's caused a bit of a delay in some of our investments. Uh, but beyond that, I don't think it's really impacted our approach to investing in India or our outlook on the market in India. If anything, it's actually sort of um, helped us realize that, you know, we can do more remotely. Uh, the fact that we don't necessarily have to travel um and and meet founders in person i think uh, over the last 12 to 18 months uh, our, our thesis has proven out well uh, we're currently looking at investing in two companies in india right now so we've issued term sheets and uh, yeah we're currently executing on those two deals right now it's good to hear that you're one of the very few people who's actually mentioned that it's not really changed a lot from an investment perspective and uh, i want to flip and try to understand from the other side right what about your portfolio companies how bad were they hit because one of the things that i've been discussing with a bunch of my colleagues is that a lot of companies did not expect it to be hit as bad as they were but more importantly from a bench strength perspective so ceos had to go back and try and understand how do you optimize efficiently to maximize the workforce that they had because a lot of people as you mentioned ended up getting covid themselves so keeping that in mind and trying to look back at your portfolio as well was that a concern and did your portfolio founders experience the same themselves um <clears throat> yeah i think it's an interesting question but well, i think what you have to take into account is we have a fairly sort of geographically diverse portfolio at this point in time 
Um, we currently have one investment in India, uh, which is Cure.ai, and a lot of the rest of our portfolio is spread across Southeast Asia and Australia at the moment. Um, so initially, when when the cold wave started, we were a bit concerned that um, you know a lot of the companies would be pretty severely impacted. Uh, but given our focus is primarily on the enterprise opportunity and the B2B opportunity, um, I don't think most of our portfolio was really impacted, uh, I think, to a, large, to, a, to a significant extent. We've had some impact at the beginning, uh, uh, so sort of mid-2020 timeframe, where some of our portfolio companies experienced a slight Decline in revenue, um, but beyond, but they're, all of them have since recovered very well. Uh, a lot of them have gone on to raise up rounds, actually. Um, and and the other thing that we tend to focus on is um, uh, investing in businesses that are sort of not single market opportunities uh, as far as possible. So we look at investing in companies that have sort of a global approach from day one. So um, that said, while some markets uh, the business has been impacted. Um, most of the other markets that our businesses operate in, they've uh, done fairly well and they've recovered in most markets. So overall, uh, quite a, quite a, I guess, a good year, notwithstanding the COVID impact. Um, uh, in, in India, particularly, I think, as I mentioned, I think the founders uh, themselves and the founders' families have have uh, contracted COVID, so that's resulted, I guess, in a bit of a slowdown. But but uh, I think the teams are large enough where responsibilities could be delegated. Um, so yeah, as I was saying, like not not really a big impact on the business business itself uh, and sort of uh, the I guess the prospects of the business in the last twelve to eighteen months. But one interesting thing that we've seen emerge from this is obviously uh, distributed teams, right? So uh, a lot of our portfolio companies are now looking at remote work as the default option now. Um, without naming names, one of our portfolio companies decided to completely give up their office and instead spent the rental budget on team bonding once a month where they go rent a large beach house and uh, host the entire team there. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, it's, it's proven to be more efficient in, for, for most of our portfolio companies, the distributed team approach. That's fantastic. I read this the other day somewhere where for every $5 a startup raises, they spend $2 on real estate, which is stunning uh, when you think about it, especially for latest age companies. And you can just imagine how much money is spent on real estate and office space. So it's good to see that one of the things that COVID has accelerated is remote work. And now you've got distributed teams across the globe. So you mentioned something which is really interesting, and I want to draw parallels to what's happening here in North America, right? So COVID really slashed the number of VC rounds in the US, at least by 44%. Um, we only saw about 550-odd latest stage deals as compared to the year before, where it was upwards of 800. Now, looking at that and comparing that to Asia, you've actually seen that latest stage deals in Asia has gone up. I'm trying to wrap my head around why this trend has come about where North America, which kind of dominates the enterprise space, has seen reduction in the number of deals. But on the other side, Asia has seen an increase in number of um, enterprise deals. Would you have any insight as to why this is the case and what is really driving this uh, unique scenario, especially given the fact that Asia has traditionally not been known to be an enterprise-driven ecosystem? 
What, what I think is happening is obviously, as you rightly pointed out, Asia hasn't traditionally been a very enterprise um, focused market, especially in the VC ecosystem. But over the last couple of years, we've seen that trend change. There have been a lot of new emerging enterprise focused companies um, uh, coming to life in, in this part of the world. And I think that's driving a lot of the, the capital flow uh, in, into those companies. Um, you've seen some pretty large companies emerge, and especially in the last 12 months or so, uh, in, in, in focused on enterprise, uh, focused on the enterprise opportunity. Uh, I, I guess uh, for a lot of these companies, as you said, U.S. is probably the biggest market. But some of the trends that we are witnessing is increased adoption of enterprise solutions in Asia itself. So whether it's cybersecurity or uh, efficiency tools. Um, and I think a large part of that is also being driven by COVID, where uh, things like communication tools, uh, uh, workflow management tools, the, the rate of adoption has increased a lot over the last 12 to 18 months. So I think that's partly also driving a lot of the VC interest in this space in the region. That's an interesting point, because as startups make their way into enterprise, they often grow from single product to platforms. Uh, platform offerings, which basically means that the investments tend to be long haul, which take roughly about a decade or so to mature and give you an exit. So bigger the approach, the longer the sales cycle. So even though sales motion could be stalling right now, it appears that VCs are just giving up on these type of investments in North America, but not so in the Asian markets. And they understand that the long game perhaps would play out um, in the coming years especially given that Asia is positioning itself as a talent hub. Uh, there's a lot of demand that's coming in from um, enterprises as, as well as other sub-ecosystems that are developing in countries in Southeast Asia, China, India. Uh, the Middle East has grown out, grown out to be a very interesting market as well. So do you see the shift coming about across the globe wherein you have Asia becoming a dominant player when it comes to enterprise SaaS play compared to North America, which is predominantly dominated till date? Um, I mean, uh, that's definitely a future I'd like to believe in, uh, but I think it's going to be a while before that actually happens, in my opinion. Right now, North America is still the primary market for most uh, enterprise companies, whether they're set up in Asia or where the companies are from the U.S. themselves. Um, that said, I think, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think the rate of adoption of these solutions in Asia is increasing at a much higher pace. Uh, given it's starting from such a low base. Um, so I think the higher growth market will definitely be Asia for the time being. Uh, and, and also the Middle East, as you rightly pointed out, a lot of the enterprise SaaS companies that we're investing in and we're looking at investing in are, are actually looking to the Middle East as a, as a key market going forward. Now, one of the reasons I brought that up is because no matter what the company is, especially in the enterprise space, as soon as they start to see some sort of growth, some sort of momentum, they always set up a North American office. They try to move from Asia to North America and try to sell to the bigger corporates, obviously, because they've got the budgets, they can, they can, they can buy the technology that they're offering and they're building, which is why we see, we see that, that shift from Asia to, to North America. That's one of the reasons why I brought that up to understand, is the demand growing within Asian corporates and Asian companies to spend as big as North American companies. Is that trend something that you're looking at within the Asia ecosystem, especially now that you're evaluating companies in the enterprise space as well? 
Um, yes, I think uh, it depends on, I guess, what segment of the enterprise value chain you're looking at. Um, if you're looking at very large organizations, large financial institutions, and so on, I think the preference is still for them to use, I guess, better known products and solutions. They're less likely to use up and coming sort of startup um, solutions from up and coming startups. Um, uh, the other fact uh, that we've noticed is for increasing adoption, uh, I think a lot of the startups tend to tend to focus on price as a sort of a, a primary differentiator as well. Um, so while the willingness to adopt these solutions is higher, I think the price points in Asia will tend to be lower uh, for a while. Um, and I think once these startups begin gaining sort of the reputation of being uh, or providing a solid product or a platform, uh, they get their names up on the lists from Gartner or, I, or IDC, for example. That's when we see sort of that change happen, where large enterprises are willing to pay, I guess, uh, similar uh, uh, price for the same solution that you know the Western counterparts or the better known counterparts are offering. Um, so. Um, yeah, I think uh, that that would be my take on this. Yeah, there's some interesting points that you brought up there, especially the appetite that Asian companies have for spending enterprise software. And we've seen that play out even in India, given the fact that there's a rise in the SMEs who are willing to pay small amounts, but it is a change that should come about, which probably hadn't happened a decade ago, which is perhaps also why one of the reasons India within the Asian context was not able to position itself as an enterprise SaaS player, but that narrative is slowly changing. And I wanted to actually bring back the conversation to, to you and understand a little bit more about your own personal journey before we delve deeper and discuss a little more about the enterprise space, healthcare, and some of the other investments that you've been making at Mass Mutual. So one thing that I noticed was that you started off in investment banking and then you switched over to venture. We've seen a lot of people take that sort of career trajectory lately. I want to understand what was the tipping point for you that made you move from investment banking to venture capital? What kind of insights did you did you have about the industry back when you started to where it is right now? Sure, I'm happy to answer that. I think um, <laughs> it's a funny story. I think it was more a happy accident for me than a sort of a strategic decision for me to leave banking and join um, venture capital. Um, I think, I mean, you probably hear this from a lot of investment bankers, but uh, uh, for me, it wasn't sort of so much of a decision to join venture capital as to leave investment banking at that time. Um, I was just sort of burning out. I was tired. I just didn't want to be a banker anymore. So my plan was to actually take some time off and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and as soon as I quit banking in Hong Kong, uh, one of my ex-MDs reached out to me um, and told me that he was setting up a new fund in Singapore and whether I'd be interested in coming and joining him. So that was my initial foray into venture capital. I think uh, it worked out well for me because I was sort of the right place, right time, I guess, uh, because that, that was 2014. And the VC ecosystem in Southeast Asia and Singapore in particular was still very nascent. Um, there were no large funds in the region targeting sort of uh, the Southeast Asian opportunity. So at that point, my decision was around sort of, okay, 
massive pay cut, uh, but this is a great foothold for me to get into uh, an emerging space in an emerging region. Um, and I think uh, a lot of the sort of philosophy around being the first fund to focus exclusively on Southeast Asia at that point really appealed to me. And it was a, I have to admit, it was a pretty steep learning curve, uh, but it was something that I sort of dove straight into and really enjoyed. Um, so yeah, I think that, that was sort of uh, my my um, <laughs> uh, journey into venture capital. Uh, this was 2014, and since then I've, I've witnessed the landscape evolve at such a rapid pace. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad I took that step at that time. That's fantastic. And one of the things that a lot of people on the podcast also like to understand, especially about the guests and their journeys, is their learnings. So you've been in VC yeah. for about six years now. And, um, you know, they say VC years are like dog years and you're, it, it's, it's almost equivalent to you spending almost three decades in, in the space, given the kind of change that you've seen, the rise and the ups and downs that we've, that we've seen just in the last six years is phenomenal, especially keeping in mind the Southeast Asian markets, but really trying to understand how different and nuanced is it investing in Southeast Asia? Because culturally, there are so many geographies that you're looking at. Southeast Asia itself, like Singapore market is very different from an Indonesia, is very different from an India. And India in itself uh, is like Europe, like so many states culturally so different. And the way people behave at technology is inherently different from the other Southeast Asian countries as well. So what kind of insights have you gathered just investing in this beautiful, beautiful ecosystem, which presents its own unique challenges? I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there, right? I think the biggest challenge and also the biggest sort of opportunity in Southeast Asia is the diversity. Um, uh, I think every market has its own nuances and you have to approach each market carefully. And uh, that's that's what, what, what I guess my biggest learning was. I think uh, while I was in banking, I did cover Southeast Asia. So I did, I did deals in Indonesia and in Singapore and Malaysia. Um, so I understood the markets, I guess, fairly well uh, built enough of a network and sort of uh, in, in the region to come in and hit the ground running. But for me, it's sort of the the differences in, in the approach to each market that really sort of uh, was my biggest learning, I think, over the last few years. Um, I think Indonesia and a lot of the markets in, in Southeast Asia and even India, for that matter, are very relationship driven. I think you have to put in the time and the effort on the ground to build your network, to build your relationships, to pay it forward, so to speak. I, I, you know, you can't just walk in and try and hustle your way into a deal. Um, I think that's that's sort of the the biggest learning that I've had, and it, I think uh, that's what I spent most of my last six years doing is trying and sort of building building those relationships. Uh, obviously, unfortunately, COVID has limited our ability to travel. So over the last sort of 18 months, it's been a bit difficult, but we're still trying to do as much as we can to sort of try and sort of maintain those relationships and, and, and advise as many young startups as we can. Um, I think over, slowly, I think the evolution that's happened is as, as a lot of larger funds from, um, from, from the, the larger global funds have come into the region. I think reputation has also become sort of a, uh, I guess a priority for a lot of startups who are raising capital. Uh, I think 
Um, so we've, I witnessed that evolution as well. Initially, I think back in the day, it was just about providing capital. But uh, I think the ecosystem has matured significantly since then. I think it's also about what what VCs can bring to the table beyond capital. I think this is sort of taken for granted in, in the US, but it's just sort of uh, beginning to really sort of uh, be prioritized in Southeast Asia at the moment. So I, I think uh, what we are trying to do differently to address that problem is provide access to the resources that we, we, ha uh, we, we have available. Um, so whether it's uh, on an advisory basis, access to our data science team, our engineering team, access to the US market, our connections in the US particularly um, uh, throughout the mass mutual sort of ecosystem uh, are, are proving very useful for us. Um, beyond that, I think, as, a, as I mentioned, I think we try and mentor uh, startups. We engage with them very early on. We build that relationship with founders. Um, though we know we don't typically invest at the seed stage, we, we go in and sort of start building our relationships with the founders at a very early stage to be able to sort of then continue that and be top of mind when, the, uh, when they are ready to raise sort of the next round of capital. Um, again, I have to admit, I, I'm not sure how different this is from the US, but I think in the US, uh, at least my opinion is that it's sort of reputation driven and also a lot of it is dependent on what you can bring to the startup beyond just capital at this point. Well, I completely agree. And given the fact that we've been investing between Japan and the US, I can tell you from my personal experience that, as you mentioned, relationship-centric, culturally very different. And sometimes the, the investments take a longer period than um, typical investments here in the United States. And those are some of the learnings that I've had personally myself when looking at companies in Japan, although I don't invest and just speaking to colleagues um, at my firm, you tend to realize that um, the regulatory frameworks are also very different in some of these Southeast Asian countries. Um, that presents a unique challenge in itself, especially given how nascent some of the infrastructural and laws are in these uh, developing countries. And at the rate at which technology is evolving, especially here in the Western side and making its way to uh, Asia, it becomes very difficult even for the regulators to come up with laws that really enable an ecosystem to flourish. So that itself presents a unique challenge in itself. I'm, I'm, I'm confident you'd, you'd perhaps agree with that. And oh no, absolutely, absolutely. I think even that, I think we've witnessed so much change in the region in the last uh, five, six years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where would, wouldn't it have been possible for us to invest directly into a company in, in, in Vietnam maybe five, six years ago? I think the government has since eased regulations. And so I think we, we tend to rely uh, a lot on our, our external legal counsel's advice as well. But that said, I think uh, it, part of the fun is also in being able to structure deals. Uh, to comply with regulations as well as maximizing uh, the potential for return. Right. What role do you think VCs play in this, especially when it comes to developing regulatory frameworks? Now, I'm curious to understand this because I had another VC on the podcast, a senior person who actually spoke about how he's advising the government of India in understanding some of the nuances, given the fact that he had come from an operator background himself, he understood the challenges and now he's on the other side of the table being an investor and he advises 
um, governments and policymakers in terms of building these regulations and laws and frameworks. What are you seeing in the larger Southeast Asian context? And what role do you see VCs play, given the fact that a unique organization like yours, which doesn't just invest in one geography, but multiple, what kind of role can they play in structuring these uh, frameworks so that you kind of have an open ecosystem that kind of allows for innovation and technology to flourish? No, I mean, that's absolutely, I think, a, a great point. I think uh, VCs have a very important role to play in, in, in helping governments understand, I think, uh, and, uh, and draft regulations, especially with really uh, in relation to um, early stage investing and regulatory landscape around that. Uh, again, in Southeast Asia, given it's such a diverse market, again, we've, we've sort of seen, I guess, uh, this happen to in, in very varying degrees across uh, across different countries in singapore for example the government actively solicits feedback from the vc ecosystem to help sort of make it easier for startups to to uh, set up businesses in singapore as well as raise capital and also make it easier for venture capital funds to set up funds in singapore um, so i think everything from tax breaks to easing the regulations around licensing and creating a special license for VC funds beyond the traditional capital market services license. I think those are things that we've I've witnessed change in Singapore in the last uh, few years. Um, and when it comes to like countries like Indonesia, for example, though things might move a bit slower, they are there. There is a significant amount of uh, government interest in sort of helping startups. Um, scale within Indonesia, helping sort of uh, helping startups raise capital more easily and more efficiently. Uh, and you also have associations that are sort of government sponsored, like the FinTech Association in, in Indonesia, for example, in partnership with uh, the OJK uh, and those kind of things, where a lot of senior private equity and VC professionals are actually part of that organization and uh, and help the government sort of draft regulations. Uh, I, I remember uh, the CEO of one of uh, the startups at uh, my previous fund, he actually sat down with the Minister of Health in Indonesia and helped draft sort of their equivalent of HIPAA regulations. So I think, yeah, the government is very open and I think uh, uh, that's definitely going to, to help sort of ma address a lot of the challenges that companies uh, face in the region. Or, I think, and we will, we are witnessing sort of uh, this happening at a faster pace as well. That's fantastic to hear, given that um, the pace at which technology is evolving in Southeast Asia and uh, the extended markets within Asia itself, it's good to know that there's a lot of effort being put into collaboration between government policymakers and especially VCs and the role that they can play in terms of educating and also learning the challenges that um, the regulatory frameworkers have in terms of structuring all these laws. And I think it's gotta be exciting. The collaboration I'm confident is going to yield good returns. And we've kind of seen that happen, right? And the way that I kind of analyze it is the amount of allocation that, that, that kind of gets set aside for Asia as such. Now, historically, when you take a look at it, most LPs have had some sort of allocation for Asia but a majority of that has either been pan-regional funds or China. Lesser market, like quote-unquote, lesser developed markets like um, perhaps Indonesia, Malaysia, even India for that matter, 
were still considered too risky for many institutional LPs. But that narrative is changing now. With that in mind, and bringing the conversation back to Mass Mutual, what are you seeing in terms of the allocations from how the funds were structured previously to how funds are structured right now? Is the appetite increased given that we've seen this outbreak with respect to how quickly companies are growing and scaling in these markets, especially Indonesia, South Korea for that matter as well. And of course, India has has shown tremendous growth in the last uh, just two years. If you take a look at it, just take a look at how many unicorns have come out of uh, the country. Um, The sectors that have really developed, healthcare, fintech, education, these sectors have shown tremendous growth. Has the appetite, in your opinion, also grown and allocations also proportionally increased to match that growth uh, internally while you have conversations with your LPs? Um, absolutely. Uh, uh, again, going going back to when I first started in this region um, uh, in 2014 when we were fundraising for our first fund, uh, I remember conversations with LPs. Um, yeah, it was very difficult to convince uh, institutional investors back then about the potential for the region because the question that we used, we would get asked was, uh, we've not, we haven't seen any companies sort of scale to a billion dollar plus valuation. We haven't seen any companies exit yet. Um, so come back sort of and revisit this conversation when you know we've witnessed a bit more of those trends happening. But um, I remember that was sort of uh, conversations prior to November 2014. And then between November 2014 and November 2015, we've witnessed sort of the sudden growth of companies like Grab and Gojek and you know some of these sort of better known names in Southeast Asia. Uh, and yeah, that drove a lot of interest. Uh, and this was 2015. And since then, we've witnessed uh, sort of that sea change happen, where a lot of institutional LPs from the West are allocating more more of their capital into into this part of the world. Um, I think uh, the region has proven its potential. I think India is a slightly different story. India, given the sheer size of the market, has always captured sort of the interest from institutional investors. I mean, you have large PE funds uh, with their regional offices in India. And more more so, more recently, I think, uh, you, you obviously you have much larger funds in India as well that are attracting a lot of institutional LP interest. But yeah, Asia as a whole, um, ex-China, ex-South Korea, ex-Japan is now attracting a lot of uh, lot of institutional LP interest. And speaking of mass mutual itself, I mean, uh, we we are a single LP fund uh, where mass mutuals are L- only LP. But um, they took a decision in 2017 to expand the venture investing platform and take it global. So. They had the option to one invest in an existing fund or stand up their own fund, and I think for Asia, the decision was to uh, set up their own fund because, again, uh, in 2017, early 2018, it was still relatively, relatively uh, the the VC ecosystem was still relatively um, new, um, and um, yeah, the decision was to start investing directly, um, and uh, so that was. Then and since we've since tripled our AUM since the first fund was launched in 2018, uh, and uh, Mass Mutual is definitely looking to deploy a lot more uh, capital through us in this region. That's in fact a good segue to understanding the thesis that you have, um, because when you take a look at the investments that you've made, you've invested across the spectrum. You've invested in 
enterprise SaaS, you've invested across cybersecurity, data, fintech, healthcare for that matter. And some of these sectors have seen tremendous growth during the pandemic as well. So talk to us a little bit more about your personal thesis as well as what the fund is looking at overall and how does this strategically tie into the bigger goal and ambition of the parent organization? Um, maybe I can just clarify that. I think uh, for Mass Mutual, again, this is not a strategic investment vehicle. So we operate as any other independent VC would. Uh, we're a returns-focused fund, uh, independent asset manager, where the, I guess the only differentiating factor is we have a single LP, which is our parent organization. So we're actually part of Mass Mutual's um, asset management side of the business. Um, so uh, having said that, I think uh, our thesis, or at least, uh, so we have, uh, so maybe taking a step back, sorry. Uh, Mass Mutual has sort of uh, 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 the venture, on the venture side, a US team and a Singapore team. And uh, we each invest out of our own fund. Uh, and our Boston colleagues uh, are focused on North America and Israel. And uh, the Singapore team focuses on Southeast Asia, India, Australia, New Zealand, and Hong Kong. Um, so each team or each fund, uh, I guess, decided its mandate uh, separately. Um, so in Southeast Asia or Singapore, uh, we are focused on, as you rightly said, enterprise software, cybersecurity, fintech, and digital health. Um, and these were sectors we, we, we picked specifically because uh, we saw the potential in, in this region uh, and in those verticals or those sectors. I think. Um, Historically, a large part of uh, the investments in, in, in Asia or, or this part of the world have typically gone into consumer-focused uh, businesses because that's where you can scale rapidly, you can generate massive returns fairly quickly. Um, that said, I think we saw sort of a, a sweet spot where we could sort of come in and differentiate ourselves from the other funds by focusing on the enterprise opportunity in the region, which is still nascent and uh, which we believed had a significant amount of potential. And this was 2018 pre-COVID. And I think what happened during the last 12 to 18 months has, has, has proven that that thesis is in fact true. Uh, we've seen, as I was talking about this earlier, in rapid adoption of a, a lot of services, the need for digital health platforms, the need for increased cybersecurity adoption in the region. Um, so yeah, it's worked out very well for our portfolio. Um, uh, the need for financial services beyond sort of your traditional banking services. Um, yeah, uh, that, that has been a thesis and we've seen it play out very well. And we're continuing to focus on that. I think uh, everything from uh, ease of access to capital markets, uh, in making sort of products that were traditionally unavailable to sort of a lot of the population, making them easier to access and more affordable. That's a fantastic point that you bring up because um, Southeast Asia uh, itself saw 40 million new users come onto the internet for the very first time during 2020, which kind of brings the entire number to about 400 million which just presents a massive opportunity, especially when you're thinking about bridging the gap between people who are wanting to communicate 
do e-commerce, purchase stuff, and more importantly, use technology to to enhance their own quality of life. That's such an interesting conundrum that uh, most most countries kind of face. And now being forced to stay online, technology and digital adoption has skyrocketed across the board, especially if you take into consideration two sectors, edtech and fintech. And approximately 55% of new digital consumers have tried some sort of an edtech uh, service in the Southeast Asian market. And 44% have tried a fintech product. Primarily, I think it's it's on the loan side and uh, or and, and some other financial lending services. Now, now, the million dollar question for VCs is, were these or are these sectors the usual suspects or temporary beneficiaries of just the pandemic? Or is this a structural change that's going to come about going forward? And is this where the opportunity really lies for Southeast Asia? I'm going to come to healthcare in a moment because that's mm-hmm. a massive opportunity as well. But when you're looking at it and when you were putting the fund thesis into place, I get it that a couple of years ago, these were sectors that were underdeveloped and the infrastructure kind of lacked. But where you're standing today and say you were you know, perhaps launching another fund or you're kind of developing a new thesis, what is thesis 2.0 going to look like targeting 2025? Great question. <laughs> I think when we set out, I think it was sort of taking the next five to 10 years uh, as an outlook um, and not so much what the current trends were. Um, so if you look at our portfolio, I think uh, we, we, we haven't on the fintech side in particular, we haven't really focused on payments. We haven't focused on um, um, lending, P2P lending or those sort of opportunities. What we really focused on was trying to invest in companies that are focusing on the largest pain points uh, in in the region. So if you look at it this way, I think this is not a short lived trend that was sort of where adoption was particularly driven by the pandemic, but I think this is the way forward. Uh, If you look at what's happening in the rest of the world and still in Asia and, and where we are in Asia, I think banking is still, banking services and financial services are still relatively outdated um, but uh, what I think COVID has done is only accelerated it. I don't think these trends are sort of just uh, going to disappear once, I guess, COVID gets eradicated or people learn to live with COVID and things start to go back to normal. I think it's just accelerated the pace of adoption, if anything. Um, so I think for us, we, we we focused on, I think, the largest sort of financial services or banking opportunity is sort of the corporate banking side and the SME banking side, where it's still, still even today being done on a pen and paper basis, you still have to go to the bank and you still have to provide wet ink signatures and, you know, go through, jump through many hoops to set up a corporate bank account uh, and um, access those services uh, in the region. So we decided to focus on the SME neobanking opportunity, which we saw as one of the largest pain points in the region. How do we enable small businesses and our own portfolio companies for that matter to set up a bank account quickly and start accessing financial services? Uh, and that's sort of what drove our thesis on, on some of those things. And we also looked at slightly sort of counter-cyclical bets when we said, okay, there's been a tremendous increase in, in, in uh, adoption of uh, uh, peer-to-peer lending and sort of buy now, pay later services in the region. But on the flip side, the the debt collection services are still being operated in a very manual and traditional way. 
So how do we then focus on automated debt collection, ethical and automated debt collection? Um, yeah, and um, as I was talking about it earlier, also like capital markets technology, um, how do we make, uh, I mean, if, if you think about it, like if you talk to a financial advisor, they'll tell you that a large part of your portfolio needs to be in fixed income or relatively, I guess, um, safer products. But as a, as a, as a retail consumer, I, in, especially in, in many parts of the world, I can't buy a corporate bond because the ticket size are $200,000. How do we make that more accessible? How do we create a solution that provides access to these products to the retail consumer? Um, yeah, that's been sort of our thesis. And I think it's gonna play out well in the coming years. So to answer your question, I think our 2025 uh, thesis 2.0, I think will still be the same for the time being. Very interesting to have this conversation because Another reason I brought this up was about the internal conversations that we were having and how quickly things have changed um, from our perspective at the fund. But that could also be perhaps because we're thematic investors and we take a very trend sort of an approach to our investing and uh, our thesis. But coming to one of the things that I've been really interested in speaking to you about was the healthcare ecosystem that currently is such a huge challenge globally speaking as well, because we saw how broken it was. And especially here in the United States, we saw how it, how fragile the ecosystem was. We saw similarly how Southeast Asia in itself kind of presented its own unique challenges with respect to how broken the links were within the ecosystem. The value chain kind of was exposed because of COVID. We saw, or we are also seeing India go through the challenge right now as we talk about it. Having said all of that, right? The healthcare expenditure in Southeast Asia is perhaps the highest ever. Like it's it's growing faster than even the GDP in in uh, in some countries. And at the current pace, it's expected by that by 2025, the healthcare spending would accelerate upwards of 750 billion dollars, which is almost twice of what it was um, just three and a half years ago or four years ago. Now, seeing this massive growth that's come about, I can kind of assume that this is because of two reasons. One is because you're seeing um, the aging population, which is kind of highlighted through some of my learnings in Japan and even China for that matter. And the fact that the increased life expectancies amongst this higher demographic is increasing the spending as well and lowered fertility rates that's kind of adding to the challenges of the ecosystem. Now, this is an overall macro sort of perspective that is seeing uh, a tremendous rise in terms of the spending within healthcare ecosystem, but just within Southeast Asia. Now, when we break it down multiple layers and we take a look at, say, perhaps Singapore, we look at Malaysia, we look at Indonesia, and then we look at the Indian context. Now, you, while you are sitting at your desk and you're looking at these different markets and the challenges that they present, especially from a healthcare perspective, which is so nuanced, again, we spoke about culture and how culture can play a massive role in technology, technology adoption. But here, lifestyle plays a different role. Now, that is a completely different conversation and an angle that we hadn't discussed and how lifestyle can really impact the health of individuals and therefore the technologies that are being built to address the same. Now, how do you evaluate this? Looking at, looking at it from a returns perspective, looking at it from a long-term perspective, are you just looking at companies that are targeting their own specific geographies and therefore smaller niche verticals? Or are you also looking at 
companies that transcend the vertical does that really present a huge challenge for you when you're evaluating companies or are you looking for small diamonds in small markets and you're happy with the kind of returns that you're getting there yeah that's a great question <laughs> um for us it it is both i'd have to say i think uh, the emphasis and so the priority for us is to focus more on companies creating solutions that have sort of global applicability uh, as you rightly said healthcare is not an issue that only impacts one population or another i think so when we look at sort of investing in in digital health i think we have a slightly more nuanced or specific thesis around this um so our thesis is again um we are not experts on sort of life sciences or you know pharmacogenomics space so we we typically sort of leave that to better qualified investors i think for us we focus on how software or ai um can sort of help with diagnosis with prediction and with sort of uh, uh treatment of different disease verticals uh that's one big focus area for us two i think when it comes to single market um i guess uh companies that focus on the single market it depends on the size of the market as you rightly pointed out so uh we would be we would tend to focus more on countries like india or indonesia for for those kind of uh, companies um yeah so for us our thesis as i was talking about earlier i think when it comes to sort of the the software ai uh products that that have sort of global uh, applications we we've tended to invest in companies that are sort of trying to disrupt uh what is today being done very traditionally um so you look at our investments in bioformis in in cure.ai um for example um these are these are companies that have created solutions that are that are now being adopted globally um and 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 obviously for a lot of them uh, and cmod is the other one we invested in where again they doing some phenomenal work um uh trying to bring down sort of the cost of um sort of diagnosing and treating chronic stroke patients so yeah uh large disease verticals which which have sort of hundreds of billions of dollars of impact across the globe in healthcare spending and costs uh and sort of then sort of bringing about uh, a disruptive change in the way they're treated and diagnosed uh more importantly sort of being able to predict the risk of those diseases uh before they happen so that that they can be addressed in a timely fashion um that's been our thesis on 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 our digital health investments um that said we're now beginning to focus as i said on sort of single market opportunities as well so one of the companies that we're currently investing in is in india that's focused on the middle market opportunity um where by addressing issues at a primary care level you can help sort of prevent them from becoming chronic diseases and then saving a lot of expenditure for uh, the individual as well as sort of uh, insurance companies uh, in the longer run um we've seen that sort of model work very well in the US with examples like Kaiser Permanente and uh, Eora Health more recently as well uh, maybe Eora is a slightly different example but yeah so and then that means so yeah we're looking at sort of uh, companies um, um in these verticals on, on the digital health side 
again, that said, this is not our only thesis for digital health. I think for us, I think we, we will look to explore investing in other models as well. We're very open and um, this is sort of a, one of our core focus areas uh, for, uh, for a Singapore fund. Right. No, you bring up a very good point. And this goes back to some of the things that we discussed earlier in the, in the episode where we saw Southeast Asian markets with the population that it has, which is now currently digital, expects healthcare also at its fingertips. I mean, there was a great example. Um, it was mentioned in an article that I read a few weeks ago where Southeast Asia uh, was so averse to, to using technology when it comes to um, digital healthcare. I think it was a Singapore company called MyDoc, which launched in the early part of 2011-2012. The company yep. faced a huge resistance from its customers and clinical practitioners who favored in-person consultations, right? And rightly so. We have not been used to teleconsultations for a long time. But during COVID, uh, MyDoc ended up seeing a 32-fold jump in weekly sign-up rates just in the first weekend after the shutdown. Now, you're perhaps in a better position to tell me if Singapore is the most advanced market when it comes to a healthcare ecosystem in Southeast Asia compared to some of the other countries that are present there. Now, when you're looking, when you're sitting behind a desk, again, where do you prioritize? Given the fact that there is opportunity and there's a mature ecosystem, again, it provides you a different challenge altogether. Do you take a look at opportunity in a mature market, which enables you, um, there's a regulatory framework, they're better insurance providers who actually work closely with these technology enablers. And therefore, you know that this company could possibly scale faster and therefore in a short period of time, see good returns. Or do you take the longer bet and try and say, I'm going to invest in India, I'm going to invest in Indonesia and Malaysia, where some of these markets might in comparison be lagging in terms of the tech infrastructure as well as the regulatory framework and say, we'll try and play the long game. Where does, I mean, I know it possibly try to like balance it out in a way, but if you were to prioritize and you had two deals sitting on your table and you had to pick one, which one would you end up picking? Um, uh, I guess a tough question to answer. I think if I was looking at any company, let's say that's focused only on the Singapore market, Mm -hmm. I would definitely prioritize sort of India or Indonesia. Okay. Uh, but if I was looking at the same company that's setting up in Singapore, said that they're going to focus on the global market, but start with Singapore, then that that would then sort of be a different proposition altogether, in my opinion. Um, so I think Singapore in particular is a very interesting sort of uh, dynamic because a lot of there's so much IP being generated in Singapore and a lot of companies are now focused on commercializing that. Um, and and these are these are companies where and the, the solutions that, that that are being created here are not specific to the Singapore market. They have global applicability. But the one thing that does sort of come into play is affordability. So it's either a, a developed market play or a developing market play, in my opinion. Right. Um, some solutions uh, which might be very affordable in the Singapore context uh, will not. Be affordable in India or Indonesia. Um, so a large part of it also has to do with that. So then, if it's a developed market play, then the logical next step for uh, any company setting up here would be to try and sort of make headway in the U.S. No, I'm also a huge fan of the strong 
regulatory guidelines that Singapore has. I mean, even Singapore's national telemedicine guidelines, they set a good precedence around areas such as AI, data, um, data governance, uh, medical devices, and telemedicine. And this kind of fosters a high level of loyalty and trust amongst consumers and practitioners. And this allows you to then further go ahead and establish smooth testing beds and more importantly, commercialization of new products and services and therefore adoptability, right? Like people are able to then quickly end up utilizing technology because there's a much more robust ecosystem that's come about, which enhances the trust. And I think that is one thing that is predominantly not existed in healthcare industry. And a lot of skepticism arises within um, developing nations when it comes to healthcare, because affordability, of course, is one of the most primary reasons. But up second is trust. Like people are like, okay, what if I go to a doctor? What if I get scammed? Or what if my data is being shared? Is this going to like just add on to my costs? The whole transparency in the infrastructure, which I'm a huge fan of with what Singapore has done, and I think it's a great playbook for um, developing countries in Asia, in Southeast Asian markets to actually look at and develop. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, the role that the Singapore government plays is, is tremendous in, in sort of helping companies here achieve that. I think beyond sort of the regulatory approvals, so the HSA, which is the FDA equivalent in Singapore, has pretty stringent sort of criteria before they actually approve anything as a medical device or software as a medical device. Beyond that, I think the government, as I was saying, plays a huge role in, I guess, helping companies actually validate their solutions clinically, right? So the hospital ecosystem in Singapore is primarily managed by the government. So, yeah, I think uh, everything from setting up your phase one, phase two clinical trials to just getting, the, collecting the data, proving your, your sort of hypothesis, and then clinically validating and getting the regulatory approval, all that is is sort of a well-oiled machine in, in, in Singapore. And because of that, I think, as you rightly said, like getting the regulatory stamp in Singapore also helps these companies scale across a region in Southeast Asia because most governments look to the HSA as sort of the gold standard. But that said, I think when you look at markets like India and other markets, other developing economies, I think uh, a lot of our portfolio companies also tend to obtain FDA and CE certifications as well, just because it sort of gives them that stamp of approval and the fact that if this is sort of good enough for the US market, it's good enough for our market too. Um, so yeah, uh, we've seen a lot of companies focus on that, even though the US might not be a target market for them, but having it validated there, um, I think uh, makes it easier to sell the same product or service or solution in, in, in these developing markets. Would you ever invest in two different com- two companies operating in two different markets, but with the same solution, simply because the cultural nuances, the regulatory framework, and the other ancillary challenges are completely different in these geographies? Um, uh, I don't know, honestly. I think that's a <laughs> that's a tough question <laughs> because I don't think you can have the same solution in two different geographies where one would be able to work in one market and the other won't be able to work in that same market if if the solution is the same. I meant the core technology is perhaps the same. For instance, telemedicine, let's talk about Mm -hmm. mental health, right? But mental health within 
India is so different and mental health within Southeast Asia is so different. And culturally, um, people within India understand the challenges better of their citizens and the kind of things um, that they deal with. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed here is a lot of my friends who've um, been in the US, they prefer having uh, consultations with therapists back in India because they're able to connect and they're able to understand the nuances better than therapists here in the US who have grown up in a very US-centric culture. Very similarly, in India and Southeast Asian countries, the cu- culturally, they're so different, right? So would you end up investing, for instance, in, say, two health, mental health companies but with very similar sort of technologies and, uh, and offerings, but the fact that the people component or the therapist component is so different, it makes it a very difficult challenge for them to scale into adjacent markets? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. I think uh, that's that's definitely something that we would do. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think here, the, as you said, the market itself is so different that the same solution, though the tech might be the same, uh, there's a fundamental component that's very different. Um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll caveat that by saying that if one company has plans to expand into another geography, then we'd have to sort of maybe... Um, declare conflicts and see if companies are okay with it. But that said, I think, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Something like mental health is definitely uh, very region specific. Uh, Well, I mean, yeah, I guess, I mean, the platform could, I guess, get uh, on board, uh, I guess, mental health professionals from different markets to cater to different sort of populations. But um, if like a, like I was saying, if no neither company had sort of ambitions of expanding into the other region, then yeah, absolutely, we'd definitely invest uh, in two companies operating in the same industry in two different countries. It's a very unique market, uh, and I'm you know it, it's heavy on culture. You must nail your value proposition and look at what they mean to different people, and finding product market fit. Uh, is also very hard, especially if you're a North American or a European company trying to expand into Southeast Asia. Singapore happens to be the hotbed. It happens to be the gateway to like the rest of the continent. But as you know, we've been discussing for the last 15, 20 minutes or so, it's so nuanced and it's so difficult to do it. And would you, and during your conversations with say your colleagues from North America and Europe, your other VC firms, when they talk to you about expansion of their portfolio companies, what kind of questions are they most interested in in getting answered? What what do they not understand about Southeast Asian expansion? Yeah, I guess when when I guess portfolio companies uh, from our sister funds are expanding into Asia, they're they're pretty lar- large enough to sort of then sort of focus on markets outside of the U.S. or Europe. So I think it's it's a question of uh, finding the right people. Um, and under, uh, sort of understanding the GTM strategy and the go- and sort of the product market fit, as you said, I think those those would be the primary questions that they'll they'll be focused on as well. Um, Singapore is definitely one of the sort of first markets for most companies moving into Asia from from the West. Um, it sort of tends to be the regional hub. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest questions are, depending on which industry they're in, would be around that sort of right go-to-market strategy, identifying the right people to lead uh, the organization in this in this in this part of the world. 
great insights, uh, Anvesh. I think we can go on and on about some of these um, markets and go deeper into the sectors that you've been looking into. But this has been a great starting point for us to uh, get the conversation about Southeast Asia going because I've never had anybody on the podcast so far. 48 episodes, never spoken about Southeast Asia. It's such a diverse, huge market to pin down in 60 minutes and try to uncover <laughs> Thank you so much for providing your insights into it. And I'm extremely confident that we can delve deeper into it at a later stage when we want to. And I want to sit down with you in the future as well and try and pick one geography that you're focusing on and try and do a deep dive into that. And I can only wonder what it feels like to be sitting in your position and looking at multiple regions and multiple different sectors and trying to like understand where the bet needs to be placed and what kind of returns it can actually give you, especially in today's context when we see Antec is so rapidly evolving. So uh, it's been a pleasure hosting you. You've been extremely generous with your insights. Thank you, Akash. Likewise, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, I look forward to continuing this discussion in detail in the future. I'm always happy to provide my time and insights. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the episode, Anvesh. It was a pleasure hosting you. And more importantly, learning more about the Southeast Asian ecosystem and what kind of challenges and opportunities it presents to venture capitalists all around the world. Thanks for being one of the very first ones to have conversations around Southeast Asia. And I really hope this opens the floodgates for more discussions around the Southeast Asian opportunity, an ecosystem that just lives outside India. There's so much that investors can learn about the larger SEA market and the kind of challenges it presents is not very different from the ones that we see here within the Indian context. Thanks again, Anvesh, for your time. Now, if you're like me and you enjoyed that episode, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. It would also mean a lot if you could share the podcast with people that you think may benefit from listening to it. We've got a bunch of really interesting guests lined up and more importantly, we have a really special series that's going to be part of the podcast in the coming few weeks. So make sure you tune back in again next week to see what we're talking about. I'll catch you on the flip side. Until then, take care everybody and continue to keep hustling.